This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. Actually, actually, I'm Steve Hansen this week for the oh. Halloween edition of, of Useful Idiots. Well, I'm post-study abroad student. Post-study abroad student. So what is yeah. that you're wearing on your head? A scarf. I think it's a Tibetan scarf, I think. And then I don't actually know where this scarf is from. And then I just put together two earrings. I wasn't as prepared as Matt. Um, I certainly didn't buy any costume, but I thought this was pretty resourceful. Well, I didn't buy any costume either. I just have this. Well, you bought it at one point. At one point I bought it, but that's not not because I was planning on wearing it. Wasn't for Halloween. (laughs) Wasn't for Halloween. I just buy weird costumes all the time. Oh, right. You do. Yeah. What else do you have? You should do it. You should do a fashion show at some point. I mean, I've got a whole sherlock holmes thing i've got a gorilla suit i've got oh, a viking yeah. costume i've got i i've got a couple of sort of werewolf type things um, interesting this kind of has a werewolf feel to it yeah i've got some things from movies like you know the jacket that roy wore and blade runner oh wow uh, oh you're taking that off already well, wait right. i have a i have an alternate hold on i have alternate costume oh nice very good Oh, yeah. Yeah, look at that. Although I think this is a Ukrainian outfit, not Russian, but... Could be. It's my voodoo deal. <laughs> Your I voodoo. put pins in little Ukrainian girl because anime. Ah, little kukla. Interesting. Yeah. Kukla, that, that's in Greek, too. It means doll. Yeah, kukla is... Kukla mu is my little doll. I know that, but interesting. Yeah. I wonder who came up with that word first, the Greeks or the Russians. I'm sure we could call some ethnic genocide if we uh, put that question out publicly. There was a very popular show uh, when I was there called Kukli, which was based on the British puppet show. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And they had sort of political satire. But yeah, so this this uh, this wig is, is really hot. I'm going to wear it for as long as I can before I um you melt. Well, well, I do. Yeah, before we have to, might have to make a, an abrupt costume change. So, a lot of stuff happened this week. So much stuff. Uh, was any of it interesting? Oh yeah. I, don't know. I mean, we have some bad news. We got Stephen Donziger, friend of show. He wanted to be out on bail until they decided on his appeal, until they ruled on his appeal, and that was denied. So he is reporting to prison. Mm. October twenty seventh, reporting to prison. Really ridiculous. Um, he got six months, right? He got six months and he has to start serving it now, even though really he should be able to to wait until the actual appeal is ruled on. I don't know if we talked about this. Did we talk about it? But the judge who sentenced him actually said, it seems that only the proverbial, it seems only being hit in the between the eyes with the proverbial uh, two by four will instill in him a respect for the law. Yeah. Who says well, that? Judges, judges say all so. kinds of crazy shit. Judges yeah. who work for the who are on the board or part of the Federalist Society, which receives funding from Chevron. Yeah, and just although I, I 
I hate to push back in this case, but it, it's it's not exactly atypical for somebody to not be allowed to remain out on bail pending appeal. Um, right. Like that happens pretty often in everyday criminal cases. Right. It happens a lot less often in white collar cases. But no, it's it's definitely not good news. Yeah. And by the time we by the time this was released, who knows what's going to happen with Assange? It's going to be. I don't know. I mean, right now there's a hearing, right? They're appealing his, they're appealing the ruling on the extradition because the judge said he shouldn't be extradited. Mm -hmm. And now they're appealing it. Right. He's also been in locked up, even though he won his extradition case. Yeah. I mean, Julian Assange is never getting out. I mean, I'm so depressed. I don't mean to be a, I know, a downer. Yeah, be downer about this, but, you know, if he, if he does get out, he's, he's going to have a, He's going to have a very dramatic accident the moment he steps out of the prison. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, lots of other stuff. Facebook is in the news about, you know, a lot of stuff we talked with Evan about last week. Probably because we covered it. Yeah, because we covered it. It, It's gotten to the point where it's a little weird. Havana syndrome, amazingly, it's back in the news. Tell us about Uh, that. What is Havana syndrome, Matt? Do you suffer from it? I do not suffer from Havana syndrome, although you might infer from my appearance right. that something is wrong with me. Yeah, Havana syndrome was a story that started during early in the Trump years that uh, a bunch of people in and around the embassy, U.S. embassy in Cuba were uh, came down with neurological symptoms. You're laughing. What are you laughing at? Because it's so not plausible. Right, right, right. So th- these people came down with neurological symptoms. Of course, the immediate conclusion that one comes to is Russia's using a secret uh, sonic microwave weapon to aim at the brains of um, American diplomats and and, and others. Uh, and now we've seen cases like this sort of replicated around the world. Uh, and uh, while some people think that this is a mass psychogenic episode and has all of the classic hallmarks of this, uh, the CIA is apparently uh, moving forward with an alternative theory that this is a sophisticated uh, assault, so sophisticated that the, that the most advanced military in the world can't recognize this weapon. They're, they're sort of pushing for actual response and I don't know. I don't know what response would be appropriate for trying to melt the brains of people in embassies around the world, other than war. So it, it gets nuke them. You can nuke them with nukes, or you can nuke them in a microwave. Just put their heads in microwaves. Right. Yes. Exactly. Like a bunch of ra- like ramen noodles. Yeah. Uh, ramen heads. Ramen, ramen heads. brains. Yeah. Exactly. So that happened. What uh, is psychogenic? A psycho? What did you say that some people think it's a psychogenic? Well, we can't say hysteria anymore. Remember? Because so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so the, the old the term used to be mass hysteria. Right. The new term is mass psychogenic illness. Mass psychogenic illness. Got it. Mm-hmm. MPI. But according to Politico, it's not that. So, and and some others and some CIA spokes spokespeople. So spooks, uh, spooks people. Spooks people. Yeah. Exactly. For Halloween. So that's pretty weird because, you know, that that's the thing about that story is they 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 killed it like nine times. Like there were there were, you know, there was a an episode where they had experts listening to what, what they thought was 
noise from the weapon and they came back with the conclusion that those you know that those were actually cicadas and there was another one where you know another group of doctors said well this feels like a psychogenic episode to me and they just kept you know piling on but uh, it lives so that happened and uh i I don't know. Should we just move on to, we, sure, we have yeah. a great guest today, yeah, we do. a regular friend of the show who's going to be introducing um, a series that uh, on a subject that I'm pretty familiar with. In fact, I'm, I was quasi involved in, in this whole thing. Uh, so, but we'll let that be a surprise. Yeah, we'll let that be a surprise. So, all right. So I guess we should move to uh, yeah. doing the, the four fruit groups. I'm yeah. going to take up this wig, which is like burning my head. Yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. yeah, do it. Yeah. Four, Democrats suck which is one of our food, four food groups. Um, I figured, like, Wilson, if we could just look at the uh, the Washington Post story about additional Medicare and Medicaid benefits maybe whittled or cut as Democrats woo moderates. Hate to say I told you so, but this is, again, uh, part of the uh, ongoing negotiations over the reconciliation bill. And I'm just going to read from the from the lead of the story. Uh, Democrats' sweeping plans to bolster Medicare and Medicaid benefits have been scaled back amid an assault from industry groups and opposition from centrists like Senator Joe Manchin III, uh, with popular coverage expansions likely to be narrowed in hopes of reaching a deal this week. A proposal to expand Medicaid, I'm sorry, Medicare to cover dental, hearing, and vision benefits is in danger of falling from the tax and spending package, rapidly taking shape in Congress. A framework to expand Medicaid to cover Americans in a dozen most, mostly Southern states has also been reworked. Meanwhile, liberals' plan to give Medicare broad power to negotiate prescription drug prices has come under sustained attack from pharmaceutical lobbyists and some Democrats, including Kirsten Cinema, scaling back that proposal, which is expected to save more than $700 billion over a decade, also complicates Democrats' efforts to pay for coverage expansions. Not to be a jerk about this, but I, when we first started talking about yeah. about this bill, I said, I just do not believe that they're ever going to really pass this. I don't believe it's just Joe Manchin and right. Kirsten Cinema who don't want this stuff. I think they've never wanted this stuff. Like, again, go, go back Rotating to... Rotating villain. Right. Like, we, we could go back to Barack Obama's 2008 campaign when he... He promised the exact same stuff, like let's have bulk negotiation of Medicare prices, uh, dr- drug prices for Medicare. Like, oh, we're, uh, we definitely need that. It's ridiculous. You know, the VA already does it. Why can't we, uh, you know, why can't we do it with uh, with Medicare? Then he gets in office and within like a week, he's having meetings with the heads of pharma. Uh, and then within a couple of months, they have a deal to, to go through with um, Obamacare that leaves out that and like 19 other things that they never really wanted. Right. So uh, sort of in that vein, Wilson, if we could also just see Nancy Pelosi talking a couple of weeks ago, um, because this was sort of a precursor. I did tell you that, didn't I? No, I don't think you did, actually. I think you said... Well, you asked me and you forgot. You said, are you going to do it in reconciliation? I said, no. Well, it's only extended for about a month. Maybe I didn't recognize you with the mask. Yeah, Uh, yeah, no, I'm optimistic that uh, we... These decisions have to be made. There's been a lot of discussion, and we are a a democratic party. We are not a rubber stamp or a 
uh, a lockstep party. We have our discussions, and I'm very proud of the values that all the members have brought to the table, the knowledge of the issues that they're advancing, that they bring, and the realization that even at 3.5, you have to make decisions. So again, we have to make uh, tighter decisions. Now, in my last letter, previous to this one, I said, everybody sharpen your pencil. I mean, it's an, uh, an old phrase. Nobody uses a pencil anymore, I guess, but sharpen your pencil. So they've been signaling all along that- In any other way. They're gonna be, they're gonna be doing some cuts. And, you know, we're just sort of working this out. We have to listen to everybody. We're a Democratic Party. We got to, you know, we're not in lockstep about anything. And um, and so, again, I'm just going to hold to my prediction that in the end, what we're, what we're basically going to get is the infrastructure bill with a couple of cosmetic things attached to it. And uh, all of this stuff is going to have served mainly to create the impression that they desperately wanted something, but were held back by these two villains, right. you know, who just could not be convinced to go along. Of course, in reality, again, to re reiterate a point, when if there were really only two of them, you know, they could they would put, be able to overcome it. Yeah, they would they would put Mansion's nuts in a vice somehow and and get his signature on this thing. Uh, and, uh, which is what the Bush administration did, you know, over and over and over again, when they wanted to pass something, it didn't matter what it was like CAFTA, for instance, right. They would have four holdouts in the house and Tom DeLay would take them all into a back room and they would come out, you know, with bruises around their eyes and, you know, pledging that they, they suddenly have had a change of heart about the bill. You know, this is this is what happens when you're in Congress. They they, they have a big hammer, which is right. yeah. You want all that all those jobs in your district, or you want this or that? Like you're gonna have to play ball on this thing. They come out looking like um, the Hanson brothers had roughed him over. Exactly, exactly. You you sit in the penalty box uh, and you feel shame afterwards. That's from the line from the movie too. So I don't know. I don't know what you think about this, um, but. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts because uh, it, it feels to me like they've, they've run a big game on on Bernie in particular again. And, and they added a little insult to injury with putting near a Tandon in the White House staff. Yeah, we we said you said and I agreed that it was the rotating villain phenomenon. I think maybe there's value in showing that there's I don't know that people are willing to fight for it, but maybe they're not. What does that mean? I mean, at least we'll put them on. It'll put them on blast, I guess, only if if they make it so that it's not just these two exceptional villains. Yeah, but again, but they're not going to. They're not going to like no, no matter. I just don't buy it, like unless they have a change of heart and they 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 recognize the truth, which is that if they don't if they don't come up with something that has pretty dramatic real world impact on on the lives of ordinary people they, you know they're going to be in real trouble in 2022 and then in even worse trouble in 2024 because they just can't bring themselves to come to this realization that they got they got to deliver somewhere right you know they, like you, you can't just talk about this stuff or, or complain about how crazy the republicans are it doesn't really work that way because they don't actually want to deliver and so yeah this is great they get to play make believe right 
This or is... not make believe. They get to play. They get to play. We wish we could do this, but we can't, unfortunately. Yeah, which would work if they hadn't done it 59 times already. I had to give a speech earlier this week where I was talking about like some of the changes in the electorate in the last 20 years or so. And I mentioned this couple that I interviewed in Iowa. You know, there were Democrats. They had lost their jobs. The, one of them had lost her, her job to uh, somebody who was on an H-1B visa. So she had a high-tech job. She, was, she worked in a financial services company in Iowa. Uh, she got laid off. She got cancer, then got laid off. And the company hired somebody on an H-1B visa in India at like 120th the cost of, right. uh, of her, her job. When she complained about, or she asked uh, Amy Klobuchar a question about this in, in an event, Klobuchar's response was, well, what is, you're against the path to citizenship? Completely conflating two issues. One, H-1B, it's not an immigration issue, right? But she's like yeah. essentially white, woke washing the whole thing. Like, right. You know, what are you against immigrants? Are you, you're a xenophobe, you're a racist like Trump. And, the, the you know, these people t- talked to me afterwards and they said, we've been asking about this issue for five consecutive election cycles. We can tell you about John Kerry's exact answer that's just like that and all the Democrats in between. And at some point they reach a, a level of just disbelief you know, how many times can you hear the same answer and the same promises on things? It would be great if they were to negotiate, you know, bulk negotiate drug prices for Medicare because people really can't afford their drug, you know, their medicines right now. That would be a big thing. It would be appropriate. Even if you're a hardcore capitalist, it would be appropriate. Right. Uh, Just but they won't do it. Survival. Yeah. Just for the sake of placating the masses. Right. They just can't they can't even take that step or or ending the carry interest tax break or any of a dozen other things that are just obvious. You know, so what do you think is going to happen? I, I, I just I really think that they're, they're they they are convinced that some combination of keeping the public focused on how nuts Donald Trump is and how crazy some of you know the Republican uh, proposals are that that'll be enough to get people to to come out and, and yeah. vote but you think it'll work well it, it worked in it worked in, in the last election cycle you can't say it's a complete fantasy but right. would, the, would they have won that election if it hadn't been for covid and trump's you know? mishandling of it and getting it yeah yeah and then they did well in the last midterms but the, you know so who knows i don't think that they've gotten the memo on this yet i like they're not ready yeah. to or maybe they would just rather lose and and not cave to cave to people what people actually want. So maybe it's not that they haven't gotten the memo. Right. Well, they right. They don't really want to win. Right. They're they're happy being the earnest opposition that that tries as hard as it can, but uh, you know, some for one whatever reason just can't seem to get over. And we're going to talk about some of this with our guests, by the way, because yeah, the, perfect the, guess, perfect the, timing. There's some of the uh, some of these issues came up. But yeah, they, I just don't think that they really, they're not really grappling with the whole question of like, how do we govern better? They're still convinced that this is a political issue, that they can, they can fix it with politics and not with, not with um, policy, not with policy, right? Like there's a, there's a great line in a play that Joseph Heller wrote called We Bombed in New Haven. He's the guy who wrote Catch-22. Right. And he once said, there's a, an exchange where these two characters are saying, well, we're, we're going to bomb Constantinople right off the map. And the other one says, well, why don't we just bomb the map? 
right? Uh, and that's what they're doing. They keep they keep trying to bomb the map rather than actually doing something, you know. So anyway, that's why it's called we bombed New Haven. We, we bombed in New Haven. Why is it called that? Uh, well, it's 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 a it's a play on an old um, sort of theater complaint i think i think it used to be either we bombed uh, we bombed in peoria we bombed in binghamton i forget why new, new haven it. is somehow figures into the story okay. um but you know the old days before you got to broadway you you know we, you bombed sure. somewhere else right uh you know will, will it play in peoria or you know move something along those lines it was a play on that if i remember yeah. correctly a play a play on that yeah, yeah. get it anyway that's my democrats suck uh i, I should have picked nira but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave her to you at some point. So um, yeah, we should have a new segment. What do we have for Republicans suck? So for Republicans suck, we have a good friend of the show, <laughs> Rep. Madison Cawthorn. I think we should just show the video. Madam Speaker, Dr. Fauci has forsaken his Hippocratic oath and exchanged it for the mantle of unchecked power. His policies shuttered the U.S. economy, drove our country into financial upheaval, and violated the rights of millions of Americans. In July, he willfully lied to the U.S. Senate about his role in funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. This week, the world was shocked to discover that through an experiment under his watch, sweet beagle puppies had their heads stuffed into crates so that sand flies could slowly strip away the skin from their bones. These defenseless animals were damned to agonize in silence because their vocal cords had been surgically ripped from their throats so that their tormentors could discharge their evil actions without having to hear incessant yapping. Madam Speaker, today I am calling for the creation of a formal commission to investigate the true origin of COVID-19, the role Fauci played in its creation, the false statements he made to members of Congress under oath, and why the hell Americans are funding the torture of puppies in Africa. Americans deserve the truth, and this demon doctor must never be allowed to escape justice. With that, I yield back. So the, the 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 main line I like there is the demon doctor must never be allowed to escape justice. Oh, he said escape. I didn't even yeah. hear that. Yeah. Can we hear that again? And this demon doctor must never be allowed to escape justice. Escape. escape That's good. Yeah. That's yeah. a band, right? Escape. I think so. Yeah. Is it? Or maybe it's just escape. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I I just like the demon doctor line. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's almost Republicans are awesome. Reminds me of when you didn't know whether Sean Spicer should be um, Republican suck or Republicans are awesome after he took part in Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, that was impressive. I I think in hindsight. Yeah. That was clearly awesome. The Fauci thing is, I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, don't, I don't want to say, say this, this and but... I'm not pro. I certainly don't think he's a saint. Have you seen, this is almost like more of a Democrat suck, honestly. I, what I think is interesting is that one man's saint is another man's demon. Right, yeah. I mean, it uh, is ridiculous, the sainthood of, uh, the sanctity of, of Fauci. They have candles. Well, this has been a recurring theme of the last five years, this whole yeah. let's make saints out of people. You know, whether it was, it was Mueller, right? We had votive candles to Mueller. Oh, really? I didn't know there were there were uh, Mueller candles. Oh, you didn't? Mm-mm. Oh, my goodness. There there was there's a massive assortment of Mueller votive candles. And there's a Disney. Is it a what what channel is the is the um, Fauci movie on? Let's see. Yeah, it's Disney, which is so funny. Again, this is a recurring theme of, of just the way we cover everything in the last yeah. 
last five years, we have saints and sinners, you know, right. people, people become instantaneously fault free, basically unimpunable, right? So Fauci is a great example. Mueller is another example. It's a little bit different, but we, there was clearly like a, you know, a canonization of George Floyd that went on um, in, in the press. And well, yeah, they said that he died for sins, basically. Nancy Pelosi right. said that. that he was yeah. yeah. Right. They start using this language that's is different from the way we talked about people pre previously in the, uh, you know. It reminds me a little bit of um, the Cuomo thing. Oh, yeah. Where, Cuomo at the beginning of, of COVID. Right. For, yeah, Cuomo sexuals. But the, the Fauci thing is just like, Fauci, who was I talking about this with? Was it with you about how he looks so chill and happy all the time, despite the fact that there was a, was a pandemic raging? That he was giving kind of, con and I, I'm not vilifying him. I don't, okay. He's giving I'm gonna, succor. Yeah, succor, yeah. <laughs> Hot take. Fauci, neither demon nor saint. Now, maybe this is because I'm not a religious person, so neither of those things really appeal to me. But I do think that he really was always, how did he, how was he always so chill? Shouldn't he have been uh, more upset? Just, I mean, I guess it's comforting, but he was giving one answer and then another. And I'm not vilifying him for that because I think in science and medicine, you are constantly evolving your position based on the data. Yeah. So I don't think some people are like, oh, we can't listen to them or oh, they're all liars or what, you know, I don't think that that's inherently a problem, but it's it definitely was something that should not have inspired such a chillness in him. Although, what do you want? You don't want to see it's not the chill factor. It's just like he looks so relaxed and happy all the time. He, he's never he doesn't ever look worried about anything. Right. And that reminds me of the Cuomo thing where he was just informed or claimed to be informed and was just basically not saying that you should inject your lungs with bleach and because of that and just reading information he was seen as a hero the problem with that is that people ha have stopped applying the usual uh, standard of right. let's examine everything they say yeah, exactly, and, and right. decide whether it's true or not like you know basically they've moved to a new model of well, let's give the benefit of the doubt uh, to this person permanently yeah. because of whatever their right. status is in relation to to um, a villain right so whether it's right. Christopher Steele or the anonymous whistleblower or the the, the anonymous editorial writer at at the, the New York Times, New York Times or, yeah. or um, you know, whoever it is, yeah. they become canonized and it becomes impossible to, for anybody to make, to ask any questions about anything. Yeah. And uh, it was and interesting to watch Comey and, and Mueller go from saint to demon and then Mueller, and then Comey came back around to saint again. Right. Kind of. I mean, he, you know, he has a movie with you know, the, uh, about him, right? He, Comey he was, too? Wow. yeah. And, and, and Comey was vilified in, initially because of, because of what, uh, his release the of the emails thing. And, and right. then he came back into vogue as the great unimpeachable hero. And then, and then, you know, there were questions raised again about him, but for the most part, we just followed this pattern of, well, this person is, anti-Trump so they can't be wrong right. about anything which is just it's 
we've gone over this this territory so many times but it's i i don't like david rubin at all but i but they he did show you what came in uh can we watch this the the fauci um promo box all right so what i was talking about here i'm not making this thing up i guess you weren't here for this yesterday the the disney which is a giant corporation uh, they've got a movie about this Fauci guy. And for some reason, they sent us a box of Fauci stuff. Like, if you don't think this is all just packaged bullshit, I've got Fauci in a box. OK, so this is I guess there's a Sounds documentary. Like a it's in conjunction with National Geographic and Disney. It's like, you know what? If there was a freaking pandemic and they were really fearing that everybody's dying, do you think they'd be spending any of their money on their fancy box? And let's see what's in this ridiculous box. They'd be putting it all to figuring out how to solve the thing. Oh, look at this. You can get a Fauci mask. That's great. Oh, and a little Fauci fanny pack. That's nice. And Fauci cards. I'm going to literally vomit. And Fauci chocolate, although this isn't branded Fauci. Oh, and Fauci popcorn. So they want you to have chocolate and popcorn because that way you can become oh, fat man. and die of COVID. More popcorn. Fauci what? the book. Oh, right. oh, my God. Oh, oh, I mean, this is this is absolutely extraordinary. Fauci the fucking candy box. That's what they're giving you. Get me the numbers on on uh, overweight people dying of COVID. They Fauci, Fauci, you got your chocolate, you got your popcorn, you got your gummy bears and your Sour Patch Kids, and you can put it all in your fanny pack while you're sitting there, you fat freak. And then you can put your uh, your soda right here in the Fauci. Uh, oh my God! And what's this here? Blissy? I don't even know what this is. Scrunchies. A scrunchie? Oh, a scrunchie. You can put oh, a scrunchie, scrunchie in your hair, too. Wow. There's no business like show business. There's no Wait business a I know. Somebody made a Fauci scrunchie? I would wear that. You would wear a Fauci scrunchie? Scrunchies are back. They're back? I guess so. I think they are kind of back in an ironic way. But yeah, I mean, okay, there are a couple things here. One is that I don't... This this whole line, to, it's really annoying, this line that Ruben is pushing and a lot of other people are pushing, which is like, oh, who cares about the vaccine? People should be encouraged to eat healthily and not be overweight. Or as he says, you're going to get fat and die of COVID. Well, okay. Yes. Okay, yes. yeah, there's they're, they're... comorbidity, right? The, le- the more overweight you are, the less healthy you are. But it's a bit it, of a. It, it, it is. It is totally hypocritical how people who did did not care about obesity suddenly yeah. care about obesity, right? Like that's a thing. Yeah, and it's it turns to this thing. bootstrapping thing. It's like bootstrapping science denial. Yeah, yes. vaccine denial. Let's say vaccine dismissal. I think there's a range of stuff going on on the other side with this. There, there, there. Are, on one side, you you will see outright vaccine denialists who take any right. negative information about Fauci to be see they're lying about the vaccine right and then there's there's another i think a level of this where it's just anger at people who you know the, at being lied to about stuff no i think i think there's a lot of people who are kind of on the right conservative you know conservatives who who are kind of you know in a schadenfreude kind of way looking at every disclosure that and huh. that Fauci is lying about something as just further evidence that we're being lied to about stuff. Right. And it just connects to everything else. Right. So so CNN saying that Joe Rogan took horse dewormer or whatever it was, you know, when he's got a human prescription for it and, yeah. and they and, and refusing to correct that even after they've been, you know, 
um, called out for, for something like that. That's there. There's an element of that with this Fauci story that um, doesn't have anything to, to me, doesn't have anything to do with the vaccine. Then there's another level of people who are vaccine, you know, like deep into the vaccine conspiracy thing, you know, who, who are looking at revelations like this gain of function thing as just another brick in uh, in the wall that they're building that is going to eventually um, end up as a fully constructed uh, conspiracy story, right? Like that, that uh, no, there was a lab leak and uh, some combination of US and, and Chinese research led to this disaster. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that everybody who's criticizing Fauci is a vaccine denialist. I think that's that's probably not. No, true. but I think this guy is. I, th- I mean, I, I, I rarely feel comfortable talking about this subject in any in, in almost any way because it's got a lot of gradations to me. I obviously believe the vaccine because I've taken it. I'm looking forward right. to getting a booster because I'm ner- I'm nervous that it's been so long. On the other hand, I'm a little troubled by sort of the changing nature of the narrative about about the vaccine, about its efficacy. I am not entirely sure that the motives for vaccinating kids have been fully explained to me, like especially sort of under age, un, under 12 kids. Um, yeah. But I'm afraid to say that that stuff because then people are going to come out and say that. I'm, I, like, I say I'm, vaccine. Yeah. Right. Or, or another example is the people who've already had the disease and have natural immunity, like. Yeah, my cousin was actually talking about that, which is that she was saying in Europe that they check your antibodies before giving you the vaccine. Mm-hmm. My cousin's a physician's assistant. Um, she's uh, vaccinated, and she was saying that she thinks that that's that's what they should do here, because Oops, you don't want if you have the immunity, it does become an unnecessary vaccine. Yeah, you I mean, check, she was saying you should keep checking it and then see, and then when the antibodies, I guess, wear off, then you should vaccinate. Yeah, so there's, but but it, but again, it, it comes back to this sort of weird dichotomy where it, where there, it's almost like it's deliberate that we that we can't have um, you know a civilized discussion about this. Right. Like, what, why why is it impossible for a bunch of people to sit down in a room and say, okay, yeah, like the there's lots of evidence the vaccine is really effective in preventing deaths. So let's yay that. Right. But then let's look at each yeah. of these questions separately. Like, you know, should, should people who've already had the, the disease, should they, do they need to be vaccinated? Do kids need to be vaccinated? What's the cost benefit analysis of that? Can we explain that to, to the public in a way that's non-alarmist? In other words, is, can we at least talk about the subject without labeling anybody who asks a question about it as a vaccine denialist right on the on the other yeah. hand on, on you know on the flip side is it possible uh for for people to look at any of these questions or any of these inconsistencies or any of these revelations about things that may may or may not be particularly complementary to someone like fauci and not see that as evidence that the vaccine doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? I just feel like people right. are d- and, dug, dug yeah. into these maximalist posi- positions about these things. Yeah. And I think that also people just don't trust. I think probably that there is, there is, you know, sometimes I think leftists, not leftists, I should say vaccine 
believers, supporters, I would count myself among those. I got the vaccine. I think people should get the vaccine. Although I do think that it would be great if people's antibodies were taken into account before they got those. But um, I think that sometimes uh, people like that are afraid to, well, you have two extremes, I think, like you're saying. There's another one, which are like the leftist critics of big pharma, of which I would count myself as well, but who use that as evidence that the vaccine is bad or doesn't work or shouldn't be taken. And I think Mm -hmm. that you can be critical of big pharma. I mean, I wonder if part of the reason that they're not, I'm torn between, and I don't know enough about this, so I'm not commenting authoritatively here, but I think the fact that they don't look at like the antibodies before deciding whether to give you the vaccine could be because of just general like laziness and it's better it's easier to err on the side of over vaccinating than under vaccinating and then of course it could be because of of uh the big pharma wanting to push the vaccine but of course the issue with big pharma is that they're not giving it out to in developing nations they're not letting them well they're not letting those yeah and there's there's a lot of stuff going on with these issues but the, so I guess the, what Dave Rubin said, he got locked off of Twitter over it. I didn't realize this. Did he so really? He tweeted out, yeah, he in July, he tweeted out, they want a federal vaccine mandate for vaccines, which are clearly not working as promised just weeks ago. People are getting and transmitting COVID despite vax. Plus now they're prepping us for a booster shot. A sane society would take a pause. We do not live in a sane society. Okay, I don't think that taking a pause is the right idea, but I don't think you should get banned from Twitter over it either. They said that he was spreading misinformation. He's very, I have to admit, he's, I mean, he's kind of an idiot, but he's also kind of clever because he covered his ass a bit by saying that the vaccine mandate, he said the vaccine are clearly not working as promised just weeks ago. So he didn't say they're not working. But but I think that's a legitimate thing to point out. Like, um... yeah, I do too. Although people do overly, I mean, Yes, you can still transmit it when you have it, as Fauci himself said, but still, the more people get vaccinated, the less of the the virus is around. It's yeah, like but- once you get it, you can transmit it, but people, but there's less of the virus, the more people. This is, this is a complaint that I've had about how we do media now. Yeah, it's just a, it's a completely new way of thinking about how about reporting, like in the in, in the not too distant past, like five years ago, 10 years ago, you would report something and not worry about how people would take it. You're, you, yeah. What you're worried about is, is that true or not? And what, what they're doing now is they're saying, well, if we tell people that, the, that our estimations about efficacy, about the efficacy of the vaccine um, has dropped, right uh or that it it's dropped over time in uh, to a degree that we didn't anticipate that, that our initial estimates were off then that is going to that is going to give succor to uh vaccine denialists so we don't want you to actually talk about that anymore so let's right. not report let's not report that uh, let's assume that people are too dumb to handle that news and not only that you know let's drop a hammer on people who do say it uh and kick them off the internet and do stuff like that because what we're really interested in is this is this new version of the press which is propagandistic which is designed really focused on the behavior of the person getting the news rather than what's true and what isn't right and you you should be able to just believe that the vaccine works and handle the news that 
you know, some things didn't turn out the way they expected, or it's right. it's got some issues, or or the transmissibility is you know right. is not it's, what they expected, right. or you know, it still prevents death, but you can still transmit it. Like you know, all those things you should be able to say that. Yeah, Walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, or say that and not get banned. Yeah, right. And then and when you ban those people, or or or, or when you you make it very, very difficult. You like you raise the cost on bringing up these issues, yeah, um, significantly. What you end up is this sort of like monolithic uh, news news corps, the press corps, that is just universally distrusted. Which right, not makes to mention martyri- martyri- martyrizing. Is that the word? Mart- martyring. martyring, martyring people. Yeah, just let them say what. Like as long as it's as long as what they're saying is accurate. Right. You know, don't give them a hard time for, uh, I mean, even if they're, even if what they're saying is not accurate, frankly, I don't, I don't, I think unless there's harm, you shouldn't, you shouldn't intervene, but it's gotten to the point of being ridiculous at this point, the degree to which they're, they're clamping down on people for talking about this when, when again, a lot of these issues are, they're they're not settled either. Like we don't, we don't know a hundred percent, you know, I think we can have a fairly good guess that the vaccine at this point, we have a fairly good idea that it's not causing, you know, sort of mass uh, medical problems right. on a degree that's that would approach anything like what would happen to the people if they didn't take the vaccine. In other words, you're much more likely to develop some kind of very serious yeah. syndrome if you're not taking it than if you do take right. it. But that doesn't mean that we know 100% for sure everything about what's going on with this vaccine, what it's what whether it's better or worse than some other treatment, whether whether it needs to be tweaked a little bit. Yeah. Like we well, I think we know it's better. It's the only preventative thing, right? Like there's treatment and then there's prevention or mitigating it ahead of time. So that as you said, people who have the vaccine survive uh COVID more. People should be able to handle that and take in news that well, for instance, the new the new Merck drug, right? The Molnupiravir. Yeah. Like suddenly people are like rooting against it to work you right. know uh, or or they're or they're writing these negative articles like well be careful about reading an article that's happy about this development because that might lead people to not have faith in the in the vaccine like what the fuck like that is crazy yeah we should be happy if it works we should be happy if it doesn't work then then we'll find right. that out right but people see it as like anti right they immediately see it as vaccine evidence it's like competing with it yeah yeah and 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 this is the lens that we look at every news story through through which we look at every news story now it's they're 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 leaping ahead to some conclusion that's way off in the future oh you know if we if we release news uh, this goes back to the first the first time i started to see this was in the summer of 2016 when I started to hear reporters talking about, you know, the crowd sizes of Hillary Clinton's right. Right. thing. And they, yeah, they down, they inflated them. Or they just, or they said, well, we, we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't cover that cover or them. we shouldn't, right. we shouldn't, shouldn't talk about right. it because, because, and then they start stringing together consequences down the road. Like people will take that as, you know, as evidence that there's something wrong with Hillary's campaign, which right. will somehow hurt her campaign. Another example that I had, I like, I, I went to a Trump rally in, in, and in an article that was severely negative about Trump, like, you know, the title of the article was the fury and failure of Donald Trump. It, it, and it wrongly, by the way, predicted that Trump was dead. Um, this was before 
the election. It was my last one, last one I wrote before the election. Basically said that, that his legacy was going to be the destruction of the Republican Party. I quoted some guy at a rally whose family had been union supporters their whole lives, had always thought that the Democrats were for the working man, right. but they felt betrayed by NAFTA, and now he was voting for Trump. And I got all this blowback, both on social media and personally, like in emails uh, and phone what calls. What happened to you? People are like, well, now you're saying that economic insecurity is why people are voting for Trump. I'm like, no, I'm saying that I quoted one guy. Who, yeah. are, are we in a place where we can't we can't give people sort of a variety of facts? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Also, that was a, con- a contribution to it. I mean, people I think people think that if you say that you're dismissing racism or you're exonerating Trump voters in some ways. But of course, if you care about elections, you should want to understand the various reasons that people vote for someone. Of course. Yeah. In fact, our, our guest today is going to talk about that. Right. Our guest today is going to talk about and actually the whole thing. Uh, the whole thing is about the way we didn't talk about this issue. Right. We were sort of systematically driven to not talk about this for a variety of reasons. But this is what happens when when people grow up in a, in a media environment where they're where they're thinking about what behaviors am I inspiring with my coverage rather than worrying about am I correct or not correct? Right. Like the latter is not really our job traditionally. It never has been. The former becomes devalued. And that's why we're having so many mistakes. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm on my high horse. No, the okay. issue really pisses me off. Hi, you're on your high horse paced. In my high horse paced. Yeah, exactly. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, so isn't that weird? I think we got to go with this one. Wilson, if we can see the uh, Washington Post story. So the headline here is a hiker got lost in Colorado, then ignored rescuers calls because they came from an unknown number. It is already sort of hilariously terrible. So here's the here's the lead. When a hiker who had ventured out to explore Mount Elbert, Colorado's highest peak, did not return by the end of the day as planned last week, a person who was worried about their safety called authorities to report them missing. First, emergency responders with the Lake County Search and Rescue Team in Leadville, about 100 miles southwest of Denver, uh, called the hiker's cell phone, officials said. The call was declined. The rescue team kept trying, but repeated calls and texts to the hiker's phone went unanswered. So a team of at least eight launched a pair of hours-long searches only to be notified the hiker had safely returned to to their lodging location the next day, the Sacramento Bee first reported the hiker who authorities, I think that's whom authorities have not uh, identified, told rescuers they had no clue anyone had been searching for them. Their phone had been buzzing, the hiker said, but they repeatedly declined the calls. Oh my God, that's so weird, by the way. Sorry. Literally right as you said that, I got a call, which I pressed decline on. Uh, not from an unknown number. And I got to put on do not disturb on my uh, laptop. Sorry about that. But they repeatedly declined the call since they were coming from an unknown number. So this is this is kind of awesome. I, I, lo- I love this story because it's like, this is how crazy we are in America now. Like we, we may be dying, but we prioritize not being annoyed uh, electronically 
over right. being rescued. Yeah. That is kind of amazing. I, I kind of admire it. I kind of, I mean, I do too, a little bit. Part of me thinks it's, it's also possibly the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but right. I, I can't, I can't tell. Do you think they had like real trauma from one person in particular? Like, no, no. maybe, but maybe they have an ex who keeps calling them from different numbers or something. I feel like that would have been part of the story if that, if that were the case. Right. If there was an excuse like that, that made a little bit of sense. It feels a lot more like this is basically all of us who don't answer our numbers, but right. if we don't recognize them. Does, do you answer your number us. if you don't recognize them? I, I do what I don't, I do sometimes. And then what I do is I, if they're scams and I put, then I block their numbers. Right. Which I okay. feel like not enough people do kind of like not enough people drink coffee through a straw. To be fair, I'm drinking an iced coffee. Right. Right. Well, I, I would like drink iced, iced coffee. coffee. Right, I right, like right. iced coffee. <clears throat> yeah. Hot coffee through a straw though. That I, I can't get a metal straw. That. That's what I'm supposed to do. My friend told me. Doesn't do it. Doesn't do it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so that is weird, I think. Yeah, right? that's weird. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? For Isn't That Terrible, we have something pretty, pretty, pretty terrible. Uh, let's see. Uh, Wilson, could you open up that article about the poor man who had a, quite a shitty day? So to speak. A man was covered in poop after pass, a passing plane dumped toilet waste over his backyard, lawmakers say. A man was enjoying the sun in his backyard in Windsor, southeast England, when a passing plane dropped toilet waste over him and his garden furniture, a local councillor said during a recent meeting. The unfortunate incident in which a plane discharged sewage took place in July, according to the minutes of Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead's most recent aviation form. His whole garden was splattered on in a very unpleasant way. My English accent is so great. So oh, Karen Davies, good. thanks. Ward counselor for Cluer East during the October 14th meeting. He was out in his garden at the time and it was a really horrible, horrible experience. The law, local lawmaker continued, the whole garden, garden umbrellas and him were covered in poop, Davies explained. It's absolutely dreadful, she said during the meeting. What Davies said, by the way, is that, and I think you reported on this before, didn't you, frozen sewage? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the, the, go ahead. Well, this is not that rare frozen sewage, but what made and is this what you reported on? The Sun reported that Portsmouth in southern England locals were terrified about frozen poo, which fell from the sky. That was back in June. No, but, I what I talked about was that the the book of lists had a um, oh, which right. I read as a kid. They had a they had one of their lists was twenty seven things that fell from the sky or weird right. weird things that fell from the sky. That included um, frozen sewage. That, but wasn't uh, it related to a story, a news story? Maybe, yeah. I don't yeah, remember. Was, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, but but it's rarer to have raw sewage, and they think that maybe it was the summer's warmer weather. I mean, again, this is mm. a good argument about why we should. Uh, uh, good warning, cautionary tale about climate change and why we need to take it seriously, because if because we don't the take poop climate that's hitting change us seriously, is now not freeze frozen. Yeah, then melted the shit is hitting the fan so to speak mm. or worse it's hitting people right modern toilets on planes are vacuum secured and normally reliable as they rely on pressure suction to work so this unfortunate situation must have resulted from aircraft failure or failure to adequately service it 
Well, that's that's troubling. That's troubling. And what's really sad is that the Windsor resident was unable to claim any insurance from the ordeal as the cost of the damage was relatively low. But what about the PTSD of having raw sewage dropped on you? Shit splatter. Yeah. I feel like that. Government that may, should compensate. The government somehow. should compensate. Yeah. Or maybe the, the plane company. You should get free flights forever. Yeah. Free flights forever. Unless maybe he's triggered and doesn't even want to go on a plane, doesn't want yeah. to contribute to it. But no, I'm sure that's it fair. was real poop. I mean, I'm not going to victim blame. I'm not going to. I'm not going to disbelieve him, unless. I, I I think that it's hard to confuse fresh sewage with something else. Right. Right. What do you think it could be, besides that? I don't know. I I so. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who did this, but there was a prank that I pretty regularly did on trains when uh -huh. I was growing up. I would sort of feign distress, you know, and as we're coming to, to the station in an Amtrak train, I would kind of stagger to the to the bathroom and in there, you know, make make groaning noises, right? But you, then you then you open up a, a couple of Hershey bars Ooh. and a, a lighter, you know, and then just smear the whole, oh the whole God, bathroom. So awful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just make it look like, like something exploded in there. Right. But there's you know? going to be an accompanying smell. I'm going to, I would, I would submit. That's true. But you, you, you yeah, if you really want to sell it, you got to take a right. real dump. As but you're I'm, doing I'm it. saying, I think I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to, you know, to push, push, so to speak, to push it further. I'm just saying that I'm assuming that the guy smelled it. Right. Yeah. Oh my that's God. Probably so true. awful. Reminds me yeah. of that terrible story about the woman who reached her hand into a burger and fries, but like one of the, I think the mom ate them. And then the daughter, she must've had a less submerged portion of the fries. The mother. Yeah. The shit, the shit fries story. We yeah. did have one of those, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah over the summer. Uh, yeah. Actually, I remember it was in May. Right, so that was from uh, at Sam. Uh, oh yeah, Z4. you're right. Thank you. Yeah, shout yeah. out to the person who who brought that to our attention. I just followed Sam Z, and right. uh, I doubled his following because he had. I shouldn't out him. He had one follower though. Now he has two. Maybe he can have three by the end. Wilson, Maybe. can we get useful ideas to follow him for that contribution? And and that ended up being that debate where you and I kind of disagreed about whether or not pooping in a freezer would be. Oh, that was different. Right. That was different. Yeah. Yes. That was different. Yeah. I still don't understand that's, why. That's still a, like a, a, a sore thing. Spot. Yes. Something between us that the, you know, yeah. it's, per, it's a, it's a sticking point in our relationship. Yeah. All right. Well, let's introduce our guest. Our guest is the journalist, David Sirota. Longtime um, friend of show. Longtime friend of show runs a great website called Daily Poster. And he's now releasing a series that's available on uh, Audible called Meltdown. And Meltdown, uh, which I, and I should know this because I'm in it. The premise of this is that the response to the 2008 financial crisis set the foundation for Trump and was underreported. In other words, that it not, it not only created economic conditions that left people in a state where they were angry enough to make a decision like that, but also that um, 
that we sort of systematically failed to recognize how bad that was uh, and how bad the optics right. of, of that whole episode were, um, which is something I can definitely sympathize with because I felt, you know, for years covering this story that, that a big, a big part of the, the, the crash story that people really didn't dig into enough as it was happening was what is this going to, what, what result is this going to have politically? I think a lot of people assumed that, People's ha- people having negative feelings about Wall Street wouldn't really have an impact on presidential politics or partisan politics in any one in any particular way. Among other things, because people associated uh, Wall Street more with the Republican Party, but it didn't really work out that way for a variety of reasons that we're going to get at into today. And I think it helped shape this dynamic of kind of us against them rhetoric uh, across the board in politics. And we saw that we see that in both the Bernie movement and and some other movements on the right. But he gets into all this. The the series is great, um, and he'll talk a little bit more about who produced it, what the different chapters of the story are. Should be a great discussion. So yeah, let's let's get to it. All right, welcome to Useful Idiots, David Sirota, friend of show. Welcome back. Uh, welcome Thank you back. Thanks for having me. This feels this this feels a little unnatural, like almost like ethically. I'm not even sure whether the, what the deal is here. I'm I'm going to ask you about something that I oh, know I all about. I right? know. I know. I can I know ask instead. Do. So it's kind of it's kind of like I'm kind of full of it, right? Uh, you're not fu- you're not full of it. Uh, I'm sure we can explore things that we agree or disagree on. Uh, right. But but yes, you you oh, you yeah. are a, a a an important voice in the project that we're going to talk about for sure. Okay. All right. Well, so tell us, tell us about Meltdown. Tell me about this project of which I don't know as much and in which I have sure. not participated. Sure. So the project is called Meltdown. It. I've spent about 16 months reporting it. It's uh, uh, executive produced by me and um, uh, Alex Gibney, the director, uh, the Oscar winning director. Uh, the basic premise is, is that I think a lot of people know about the financial crisis that happened. There's been a lot of amazing reporting done about that, uh, including by Matt Taibbi, uh, about what happened to create the financial crisis. There has been less of a willingness by people in power to look at how the aftermath of the financial crisis uh, ended up making lots and lots of people disillusioned about uh, the government in general, about the Democratic Party in specific. And so the the Meltdown is a project that looks at the Democratic Party, uh, its response to the financial crisis, making lots of promises in 2008, uh, offering up lots of populist rhetoric, and even in 2009 and 2010, but essentially throwing in with Wall Street, uh, and how uh, that helped create the backlash conditions for Donald Trump, uh, it helped create the uh, backlash conditions that I think still exist in this country, where people look very skeptically at the idea that that government can or is willing to do uh, anything other than enrich the rich and empower the powerful. So that's what the, the, the series takes a look at. How did that happen? What were the promises that were made? Uh, and how did those promises end up, uh, they were explicit, how did they end up being so uh, unfulfilled? Sort of starting at the very beginning, where do we first see a discrepancy between what the Democratic Party is saying about its crisis response and what it actually 
does because obviously the response starts before they before Barack Obama even takes office. So right. it's a little bit of a complicated story. Right. Well, I mean, Obama played, a, let's remember, he played a, a really big role in forging the TARP program in the sense that, remember, he flew back, if people forget this, he flew back, it was during the end of the campaign, he came back to Washington, it was this big moment where he, McCain, and Bush uh, were at the White House, and Obama essentially urged passage of the uh, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was the giant bank bailout, uh, and there was some uh, progressive skepticism of that bailout, uh, and there was some right-wing skepticism of that bailout, uh, but ultimately they managed to pass it, actually on the, on the second vote, it actually went down uh, at, for, uh, on its first vote, which shows that there was really skepticism there. Uh, and then he gets into office and the, the first win, I mean, there was a Politico story that his first win, he was making calls, his first win was to release uh, the second pot of money uh, in that bailout. So, you know, the, he had at least partial ownership of that bailout. Uh, and what, what we really see is, is that that bailout ended up being a very top-down bailout. Even, by the way, the Obama administration officials in, in our series uh, admit that, that it was a top-down bailout, lots of money given to a handful of financial institutions. Uh, and, uh, you know, the party had been saying, we're going to deliver help to regular people, but it was a very trickle-down uh, kind of uh, bailout. And where I think things really began at the very be at the start of the Obama presidency really began to to unravel was in the whole scandal over the AIG uh, bonuses, which is sort of a tempest in a teapot. But I think it be because because it represented something bigger, it became a huge scandal. And, and the basics of that were that the Democrats were passing their stimulus bill. And they made a big thing about, hey, we're going to make sure that bailout money, at least at the minimum, isn't subsidizing the giant bonuses of the Wall Street people who created this problem. Uh, and then what we ended up finding out was, and it became a huge story, you know, Glenn Beck and all these folks, you know, fanned the flames of it, the, Repub the Republicans pretended to be all upset about it, that the Democrats had slipped in uh, language into their own stimulus bill basically saying that AIG, which was one of the central players in the financial crisis, that AIG could use the money, you know, tens of billions of dollars that it had, it had been given. It could use some of that money to pay executive bonuses. So what ended up happening was three months after the election, the Republicans who had just gotten their asses kicked, they got themselves a political bailout. I mean, they got to stand up there and say, hey, you know, this is, you know, the, why is the Obama administration going to bat for AIG? And look at AIG gives money to some of these Democrats who orchestrated this, people like Senator Chris Dodd. So that was the first sign that the Democrats were not necessarily serious about fulfilling their promises. And Obama was like flailing around. I mean, at first he said, I'm so mad about this. How could this happen? And then ultimately he went on 60 Minutes and said, you know, there's nothing we can, we can really do. So it was, it was a little, uh, not even little. I mean, it was a real moment where I think it was the first time and it was early on where it was like, you just campaigned across the country saying you're going to get tough on these people. And right out of the gate, you're allowing bailout money to be used to subsidize executive bonuses. I and mean, we're not talking about, you know, money to capitalize the banks, money, literally bonuses for the people who created the crisis. And yeah, not just AIG, right. AIG FP, mm -hmm. which is a, <laughs> which right. most people don't know is was a little tiny. So, so AIG is an insurance company, but they had a financial products division 
that mostly worked out of London. They had an office in Connecticut as well. But these guys were basically sort of the bookies for for Wall Street. A lot of people who were buying what they call credit protection against the possibility of subprime mortgages collapsing were were basically taking out that insurance with this little tiny company, which had irresponsibly sold you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of these policies. And that was one of the things that triggered the crash. Uh, and it was exactly those guys who got bailed out, right? Like the, like right. the, the, and so that was a talking point that the Republicans got really early on was, it, you know, not, not just Wall Street generally, but like specifically the, the patient zero of the crisis. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I just think yeah. like, you know, from there, the, it, it really, Look, that, and I should say, it could have been an isolated incident. It could have been like, look, we screwed up. We put this thing in. We didn't realize the timing of it. But the problem was it was the beginning of something. That what happened moving forward was that, you know, ultimately what unfolded was that the Democrats didn't prosecute any of these people. The Dodd-Frank bill was watered down. Uh, there was a very explicit promise. And we talk about this. This is the one that kind of blows my mind, was the whole, was the whole situation over something called cram down. I don't know if people remember this, there, Obama on the campaign trail made this very explicit promise. And he kind of he kind of got all into it. He got like populist about it. He said, you know, there's this quote, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, it doesn't seem to me that it's fair that, you know, millionaires and billionaires uh, can get bankruptcy protection on their second home, their third home, their fourth home, their yachts. But people who are in their first home, who are now underwater on their mortgages, they can't get any kind of bankruptcy protection uh, from uh, from lenders from the big banks. This seems ridiculous. We got to change the bankruptcy laws, and and I, you know obviously that makes a whole lot of sense. And there was a, so he made an explicit promise, and he's right in our laws. And this is kind of mind blowing, but in our laws, our bankruptcy laws still today say that bankruptcy judges, if you walk into bankruptcy court and you say, hey, listen, I can't I, I can't pay my bills. The bankruptcy judge can take a look at all your debts, and the bankruptcy judge is not allowed to shield you from the debts on your primary residence. Uh, you, you, it's an incredible problem, uh, but it can shield you on on other things, and it can shield millionaires and Consumer billionaires credit. on other yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and worth adding, this problem was exacerbated, by the way, by Joe Biden, uh, that the bankruptcy bill of 2005 that he pushed forward on behalf of the credit card companies uh, made sure that credit card companies are supposed to be paid back first before you even pay back uh, your mortgages. So there's there was a Fed study that said that that bill actually increased foreclosures because people had to pay back their credit card debt first before they paid their home mortgage payments, which meant that people Ultimately, lots of people got foreclosed on. So Obama go, goes into the presidency promising to fix some of this, promising to say, hey, listen, we're going to give, we're going to pass a little bill to let judges write down people's mortgages, right? So uh, you bought a house for 200 grand. Uh, you lost your job in the middle of this crisis. Your house isn't worth 200 grand anymore. Let's say it's now worth, because the housing market collapsed, now worth 175 grand. The judge can say, hey, listen, banks, the, the loan gets written down to what the property now is. You, you got to have some skin in the game here. It goes down to 175, 150, makes it easier for the person to pay their mortgages. Obama promised that bill and ultimately his administration helped kill it.
Uh, that was the reporting from members of Congress. They just didn't want to take on the banks because obviously the loser in that situation, or at least some of the loser, is the bank. The bank doesn't get to foreclose on your home. Uh, the bank has to take a, a little bit of a loss. Uh, and they just didn't want to allow the banks to take any losses. And there's this quote uh, that Neil Borofsky, the uh, head of the uh, TARP program, the, basically the inspector general, the, the guy who's supposed to police this, he said at one point he was in a meeting with Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, who said, and he was lecturing Borofsky and Elizabeth Warren, who was then uh, one of the, the people policing the, the, the bailout, said, listen, you don't get it. The bailout, all of these policies, they're designed to foam the runway for the banks. That was the, the sort of phrase, foam the runway, that, that essentially human beings, people in their homes were the foam on the runway so that the banks could land comfortably. And so, it, again, th these stories are kind of shocking and horrifying, but, but our point is, is that it's not just about the history, that this is exactly the kind of politics and betrayal that harmed millions of people. And guess what? That anger, that feeling of frustration ended up having a political expression in the political arena. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying I think like Donald Trump deserved to win or the Tea Party was being honest about its be being outraged about these things or Republican politicians being out like that was all a farce. It was all opportunistic. And the point is, is that if you do not deliver for people, then guess what? There's an opportunist waiting around the corner to try to seize power and, and, and seize on your failings. How does that relate to what's happening today? I think, you know, I think there's a direct line, right? I mean, the Democrats got elected promising, I'm talking about 2016 now, promising to help people, promising various programs to have you know, directly help people. Sorry, 2020, <laughs> I'm getting confused. Yeah, 2020, right? We're gonna help people. We gotta get Donald Trump out of here because he's not helping people. We're gonna help people, right? And what you've seen, and, and by the way, at the beginning of Biden's presidency, I think he actually sort of, some synapse in his brain, I think he sort of got that. He's like, I gotta get, you know, uh, he promised $2,000, it was only $1,400, but at least it was like, we, we gotta get help, help out to people. And guess what? That was popular, it's a popular thing. You know, I'm just helping people, right? Not a top-down bailout. His first rescue bill was a good first step. The child tax credit helped lots of people. Uh, but now in the reconciliation uh, debate over the anti-poverty, the healthcare programs, the, the housing programs, you see this horrible process where the Democratic Party is backing away from its explicit, most power, most, most popular proposals. I mean, here's a mind-blowing thing. I, there was a Politico story that kind of, it didn't shock me, but it's kind of like mind-blowing. There was a Politico story, again, paraphrasing, but it was like, Democrats are now going, looking to get rid of, water down or excise their drug pricing provisions in order to get that a earlier final in the show. deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you start thinking about it, you're like, so in order to get a final deal with your own party, you're going to cut out the thing that in polls, the one thing in polls that people say they most want, like literally that in polls, drug allow Medicare to negotiate lower prices is the number one polling thing uh, initiative about the reconciliation bill. The number one thing that people say they want in order for the party to get a deal on legislation, a deal with its own party, apparently it has to cut out the thing that, 
That's the, that's the thing that people most want. It relates directly to this. And, you know, we, we wrote today in, in a Rolling Stone piece that we have to understand that this connects to the crisis of democracy. This is not just a situation that, that is about the economy. I mean, obviously, the healthcare system is horrible. Obviously, drug companies are ripping people off. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the, the economy has become a, a kind of neo-feudal economy. Those are all, that, that's all obvious. The, I think what's less obvious, but really important, is that if people keep voting for change, and you, the Democratic Party, keep promising change, and then you get into power, and you shill for your corporate donors who don't want that change, and you choose your corporate donors, and you betray your promises to voters, what you're saying to voters is that democracy doesn't matter. And, and so if you do that, if you gut that agenda, and then you think you're gonna run for re-election or in a midterm election saying, hey, you know, maybe you're mad about our betrayals, maybe you don't like that, but we gotta protect democracy, right? We gotta protect democracy from, from the insurrectionists and the like. There's gonna be a lot of voters who said, look, I just voted for you. I just used democracy to put you in power. Your defense of democracy, you're saying, I gotta, I gotta support you only because of democracy. You're proving to me that democracy doesn't matter. So th that sending that message over and over and over again is part of the crisis of democracy. And look, I wanna be clear, I mean, it should be obvious, I'm not saying I think it's great that the Republicans are trying to limit voting rights and you know, sort of are uh, you know, rejecting, denying election results. But the point is, is that arguments about that become less politically salient when the party in power is essentially saying to voters, you voted for us, we promised you things to get you to vote for us, and we're not going to deliver for you. I mean, I, I obviously agree with all that. I, I remember in 2010 being at a foreclosure court. You know, it's like, like a line of people uh, being being evicted in these high speed foreclosures. They call them rocket dockets right. at the time, and this was this was happening sort of before Occupy Wall Street, right? And they're completely different people. Uh, so the uh, the people who are being foreclosed on are sort of ordinary middle class people of all races, you know, white, black, Latino, everything. But they're not the Occupy people, right? right. They're like they're not college educated intellectual protesters. Like when did those people? It, it felt to me like if that energy ever got directed somewhere, because uh, there was so much rage uh, in in, the, in that room, it was going to be very powerful. Is what you're saying essentially that the Democrats lost the opportunity to talk to those people? Exactly. You know, with I mean, their, I think with their policy? Exactly. And and I, for everyone watching, Matt is in our series, specifically in one one episode about that situation in Florida, which was you know exemplified a, a larger situation, and it's it's incredibly powerful. I mean, your reporting on that was just incredibly powerful, uh, and how it was all happening in these kind of dark you know, dungeons that, that, oh, yeah. that, that, that nobody was paying attention to. And, you know, it was just, it was just this horrible process. And yes, the Democrats had an opportunity to take that justifiable frustration and anger and channel it into something uh, uh, real and positive. And, you know, I think we have to understand that that's not some sort of crazy idea. That, that that's exactly 
what Franklin Roosevelt did. And I know, you know, I know referring back to, to the New Deal and Roosevelt is, is, is a cliche, but what's really interesting about the New Deal, and if you look at what Roosevelt was saying, he actually understood yeah. this connection between economic policy, people's frustration, and democracy in a very explicit way. And he said, essentially, at one point on his campaign, millions of people will not uh, stand silently by when the things to provide their needs are available, but not being provided. That's a paraphrase. He said it much more eloquently than me, right? He also said that in other countries, uh, other industrialized countries, democracy was on the ropes because people uh, were frustrated uh, with uh, inept government, essentially corrupt government, and ultimately they were willing to sacrifice democracy in order to get something to eat. That was his the way he right. And, 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 his, and his, the point in saying that was, is that what he was saying was the new deal to actually invest in people, to actually help people, to actually have, if you're gonna do a bailout, a bottom-up bailout, that, that one of the reasons to do that beyond it being the moral thing to do, beyond it being the necessary thing to do, is that's a way to combat fascism essentially. That's the way so that when the right-wing opportunist comes along and says, hey, look, you know, uh, you're getting screwed uh, by the banks, you're getting screwed by the rocket docket, you're getting screwed by all these things, and the party in power doesn't care about you. Doing something robust and real like the New Deal is a way to channel that, that justifiable frustration in a positive direction. And the Democrats just, look, they did that to win power in 2008, but they, they did not do that in, in government. It's easy to campaign on that stuff. It's much, it takes, it's harder. And, and you know, it's funny, when, when Alex Gibney and I were, were, were uh, writing this piece for, for uh, Rolling Stone, which talks about the, the, the project, he, at one point, he said to me, you know, I forgot how, how, like, how, how big a majority did the Democrats have? In, in Congress when Obama, he's like, I forgot how big, he's like, well, was it a pretty slim majority? I was like, dude, they had 59 Senate votes. Arguably, they had 60 Senate votes, right? I, mean, I think people have just forgotten how much power that the Democratic Party had. Now, you can argue, look, well, yeah, they may have 60 votes, but they had Joe Lieberman and they had, you know, Ben Nelson and, the, you know, the, the sort of rotating villain uh, that we now see in Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema. There's always like somebody, one or two people who it's always their fault and not the Democratic Party's fault. But the point is, it is the party. The president has the power. Barack Obama was a wildly popular uh, president when he first came in, had a huge mandate. So the idea that, that, that like the rotating villain is the reason why the party couldn't do something real to help homeowners, to channel that anger that you reported on uh, in Florida, for instance. The idea that it was, oh, you know, Ben Nelson is the reason why we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. I mean, that's a bunch of crap. That's just a bunch of crap. Uh, well, we hope it ends up getting the attention yeah. that uh, yeah. it needs. Well, I really you appreciate know? you guys having me on to, to talk about it because because here's the thing: it's not like there's like a ton of uh, corporate media folks knocking down my door to wanna to wanna talk about this. But I hope it gets through. I really do, and I I really want to say it really was an earnest project to try to sound the alarm. It was a lot of reporting. It was a ton of work. It was a huge slog. Anybody who tells you that these reported podcasts are kind of easy or whatever, I mean, you know, Matt, you've done these, these kind of long-term, it just takes a ton of work and it's all just to try to kind of sound the alarm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it, you know, it's, it's really, really well done. Highly recommend uh, that everybody check it out and, 
it's very needed, also very timely considering, you know, the reconciliation bill, the lead up to 2022. I mean, there's a lot of decisions in this area that are being made right now. Right. That, now. Um, I think this this kind of speaks to if people get it, you know, so well, let's let's hope they do. But you can uh, find it on you can find it. It's, Audible? A, it's at Audible. That's right. It's Audible. on Audible. Just yeah. search Meltdown. You'll you'll find it. You'll find it. And by the way, one one last thing just to add. One of the most I just want to give people a preview. There is just two previews. One, there's a never before aired interview between me and Barack Obama at the end, which I think people will find uh, very interesting. Wow. Uh, Yes. Uh, When is it from? When was uh, it it done? It is from 2006. Uh, I got a call from Barack Obama, who was mad that I had criticized him about something. And I then went and spent a day with him. And so the, the audio from that day, there's pieces of audio in there. Wow. Enjoy that. Uh, and there's also, I'm just going to leave you with this. There's also this, it still boggles the mind. There is a audio quote of something that Chuck Schumer said right before the 2016 election that is so unbelievably tone deaf and so unbelievably insane just now in retrospect that you just have to hear it because it, 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 <laughs> it's just such a, it's such a perfect encapsulation of how out of touch the party was to what was going on. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Because it, 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 but I, I, I listened to, I've like listened to it so many times. Like I cannot believe he literally said this with a smile, and he was smug and excited and and sort of proud of this and how ridiculous it sounds in retrospect. All right, now we got to go out and listen yeah, to it right now. Right. So <laughs> yeah. excellent, excellent. Uh, well, that's great. Um, it's like the old joke: How do you keep an idiot in suspense? I'll tell you, tell you tomorrow. Um, <laughs> But uh, David, this has been great talking yeah, about this. So um, really glad that this has finally come out, and um, good good luck on everything. Uh, and we'll we'll talk. We'll check in with you again soon. Great. Thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank All you. Right. Take care. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. It was great. Yeah. Um, Daily Poster is an amazing publication. Mm-hmm. Definitely recommend it. Follow David on if you're on Twitter at David Sirota. Go to dailyposter.com. They do really good reporting. Yeah, yeah. And this, I, this is a project that's been near and dear to his heart for a long time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because you know, obviously, he has that connection to Bernie. Right. The, the, the Sanders campaign in 2016 was really, in a lot of ways, like a, an implicit criticism of the Democratic response to the crash, and. He never really came out and said it like that way. The, the, I think the idea was to try to drive people to to realize some of the things that David's talking about in this um, that they're talking about in this in meltdown. And um, while they they raised a lot of awareness, I, the frustration is there's still this reluctance to realize that, and it's going to continue to have political consequences. So right. I, I let's let's. Yeah, let's hope it ends up having the effect that he wants. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we um, will see you again on Monday. Monday morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G edition of Useful Idiots, where we respond to uh, Sunday's morning shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube.com slash Useful Idiots so you don't miss those. Also, make sure you become supporters of our Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com, uh, so you get great bonus content um rate and review us on itunes 
Yes. Do you, do you want to say a little thing about how we're going to donate a portion of? Yeah. So um, just FYI, for the, for those of you who uh, might not know, we're in the process. I'm going to announce this more formally next week. We made a deal uh, with uh, the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press to donate a pretty substantial portion of the earnings of this show uh, to that organization. So and most of that money is going to go. Uh, towards things like legal defense for reporters who are in trouble, people who are being sued, people who need legal advice, uh, who aren't big corporate lawyers. So it's 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 a way to help alternative media uh, exist and compete and do all those things. And so we're we're trying to um, you, know, you know take some of the support that you've given us and give it back uh, to to people in the business. Right. Yes. And if you don't want to hear the ads, that's another upside right yeah like no a, i shouldn't say that if if you're for whatever reason don't like hearing ads you can become uh the Substack uh people get to hear the show free of ads right right and if you if if you're if you might be wondering why it is that uh right we're, that, you're we're, ads. that you're hearing ads this is part of the part of the thinking yeah, but anyway we'll see we will see you next week on, on the monday morning and hope to uh talk to you again soon bye all right Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.